Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Kay Jenkins will join us to discuss food fight. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, in the past two decades, GMOs have come to dominate the American diet. Well, are GMOs an astounding scientific breakthrough destined to end world hunger? Or are they simply a way for giant companies to control a problematic food system? Well, in his new book, Food Fight, GMOs and the Future of the American Diet, environmental writer McKay Jenkins travels across the U.S. from Monsanto headquarters all the way to the papaya fields of Hawaii to investigate this issue. The author, Professor Jenkins, is the author of seven books, including Contamination, The Last Ridge, and Bloody Falls of the Copper Mine. And he's currently a professor of English, Journalism, and Environmental Humanities at the University of Delaware, and he joins us today on the Grok Science Show to discuss uh, his fascinating book, Food Fight. Uh, Professor Jenkins, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, uh, Food Fight, uh, in which you talk about sort of the complexities of the debate surrounding GMOs. Uh, I'm curious, how did you first become interested in this topic? Well, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, the, the, my last book was called Contamination, and that was about the presence of petrochemicals in all of our consumer products, from cosmetics to carpeting to the plywood in our houses to our, uh, you know, our upholstery to our clothing. And I, I really wrote about the presence of these chemicals in all things that are intimate to us, but I didn't really get into food. And so I decided that I would spend the next chunk of my life writing about uh, the American food system and how that's come to be. And it turns out that GMOs didn't create our food system, but they've certainly accelerated it in all kinds of ways, some of them positive, some of them negative. And uh, the exploration into that topic really brought me into all kinds of places I didn't expect to see. Probably the, the question that's pressing and first on anyone's mind when you bring up GMOs is really, are, are these things safe? Or is that even the right question? <laughs> well, that's a, good, that's a good way to start. So that's pretty much what, it, whenever anybody thinks about GMOs, they, the first thing, sometimes the only thing they think about is that these are, these are plants who have been uh, manipulated in a laboratory somewhere. So these plants may have had uh, a gene from a different species put into them. They may have put a bacteria, had a bacteria gene put into them. Uh, what people know in some abstract ways that GMO, GMOs are uh, genetically altered in a laboratory. And a lot of people have kind of a visceral response, often negative, that says, I don't want to eat something that has been manufactured in a laboratory. I, I only trust food that has evolved naturally. And so that is the kind of the knee-jerk response, and I think that's perfectly understandable. We, we don't like to, you know, trust foods that we have no idea where they came from. But actually that only really raises much deeper questions, which is, what do any of us know about any of the food that we eat? Um, I often ask my students if they know where potatoes are grown, and, you know, every now and then some kid will say that he thinks potatoes grow on trees. Uh, you know, if if you think that a potato is something that comes pre-sliced and salted and fried and it's in a sealed bag and it's called a potato chip, that is a pretty long way from where a potato actually comes from. So 
most Americans these days have really very little idea where their food comes from, how it's grown, under what conditions. And that's really what the book is about, is trying to understand how we came to eat the way we eat, where our food is grown, under what circumstances, who controls it, all those kinds of things. And those questions really go way beyond whether or not a particular genetic technology is good or bad for you. Most scientists seem to think that GMO plants are no more dangerous for, for diets than regular plants, but that does not bring into the conversation the question of the herbicides and pesticides which are often used to uh, go hand-in-hand hand with these GMOs. In fact, a lot of these GMOs are actually designed to withstand uh, an onslaught of these chemicals. So if you're, for example, growing genetically altered soybeans, and I think in the United States now we have something like 85 million acres of genetically altered soybeans, uh, the purpose of growing them that way is so that we can spray the fields with herbicides that will kill every other plant on the farm except for those soybeans. Now, it may not be that the soybean itself is a problem, but if you're dousing it with chemicals, those chemicals are certainly not good for you. In fact, the most common herbicide that is sprayed on these is something called Roundup or glyphosate, and glyphosate was recently declared a probable human carcinogen by the World Health Organization. Now, that happens to be the most popular herbicide in the world, and if all our food is being sprayed with it, uh, you might reasonably ask like, what impact that has had on our health. Now, that's not a GMO problem, but the GMO is designed to, to go along with that chemical, to say nothing of that chemical getting into our water supply or into our soil or into our atmosphere, all that sort of thing. So, you know, these the problems, the questions about GMOs go way beyond simply whether this particular plant is going to be good or bad for you. It really opens up all kinds of questions. Um, I should mention also that the GMO crops that are being grown are most likely being used to make processed food or fast food or to be fed to, uh, you know, industrial-scale animal production. So whether you're talking about chickens or, or hogs or cattle, uh, you know, these are, these are, I think, something along the order of 9 billion animals a year are slaughtered for American diets. And, uh, you know, they're all eating genetically modified grains. Now, whether those foods are bad for you like on a one-off basis, of course not. You're not going to get sick from eating a single chicken nugget or a single hamburger. But what we have now is a national eating culture that is built on eating all of these foods which are grown out of all these GMO crops. And it's no secret that Americans have a, you know, an epidemic of obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure and all those things. So the question about whether GMOs are safe or not is actually a much more complicated question than simply whether the technology is creating something that is sort of individually bad for us. Indeed. Uh, you, you sort of mentioned uh, that most of the GMOs that are actually in, in the food supplier production are primarily corn and soybean, and that's uh, processed foods, and not so much in, in the fresh fruits and, and vegetables that you see in the protocile. Yeah, and that actually comes as a surprise to most people. They think, well, GMOs, aren't we talking about plants? Where do you find plants in the supermarket? You find them in the produce aisle. But really, in the produce aisle, there are no GMOs. Like you, Unless you're in Hawaii and you're eating a GMO papaya, or as of last week, now there's a very small number of places in the northwest, I'm sorry, like in Minnesota or so, where you can buy a genetically altered apple, which has just been commercially released. You can't find GMOs in the produce aisle. Where you find them is in the middle of the supermarket, in the the corn chips, in the soda, in the processed food, in the, uh, the, the meat that has all been fed these GMOs. So 
the thing about GMOs is they're everywhere and they're invisible at the same time. So you really don't need to worry about a GMO tomato or a GMO, uh, you know, bunch of grapes. Really, that's not the issue. The issue is where these things creep into your diet in very large quantities, but kind of invisibly through the processed food and the packaged foods and the fast foods that you eat. As you put it, it's, it's really one of an industrial food enterprise that's just used this technology so that it can create things that they can produce en masse cheaply, and, and it's more about product than really about uh, anything else. Precisely. And actually, there's a very interesting history about why that is true. You know, after World War II, we bulldozed all our farms and built highways and then suburbs and then shopping malls. Uh, at least on the East Coast, where I'm from, you know, every major highway has multiple cities alongside and multiple ring roads, beltways around the cities and suburbs after suburbs after suburbs. All that was built on top of farms, and we lost 4 million small family farms in the last 60 or 70 years, and that means that food production has all migrated to one part of the United States, which is the Midwest. And they don't grow a great diversity of food. They grow very, very few grains, in this case mostly soy and corn and wheat, although wheat, it's important to understand, is not yet GMO, although it might soon be. So instead of having regional food and lots of genetic diversity and lots of choice in the kinds of foods we're eating, well, the, the number of actual produce items, vegetables and fruits, has radically decreased. I mean, to the order of like 90% fewer kinds of fruits and vegetables out there. And they've been replaced by just a couple of grains, which, as you say, can be turned into uh, an infinite variety of processed and fast foods. So the GMO thing is really part of a, a system that has centralized uh, food into a couple of grains into one part of the country controlled by a very small number of companies which of course have enormous political influence to keep the system going just as it is and now the big question is is this food system going to spread around the world and when you hear these big companies say we need GMOs to feed the world what they want you to think is that they are feeding nutritious food to lots of small people, small farmers in small countries around the world. Really what they're saying is that we need these uh, crops to spread around the world so we can keep our market share. Uh, and there are a lot of critics of this that say uh, they may say they're feeding the world, but they're not feeding the world well. I mean, they don't even feed Americans well. So the last thing that, you know, a small community in Africa or Indonesia or in Brazil, the last thing they need is more cheap hamburgers or cheap chicken nuggets or cheap soda. Like, that's, that's what we do very well selling here. But that's really not what we need, and it's certainly not what the rest of the world needs. It's really sort of a homogenization of a terrible diet for the world. Well, that's true, and they're, they're very, there's a large number of corollary uh, problems with that, of course, which is if you want to grow more GMO crops in Paraguay or in Brazil, you have to, I mean, they're not building suburbs there. They're cutting down their rainforest to create more monoculture crops, to create more food for more animals, to feed more people more cheap meat. And, you know, in other words, you can, you can connect the deforestation of countries to the expansion of these GMO commodity crops. So all of this stuff is tied together. It's a very intricate global system that has, you know, implications for not just the way we eat, but the way the world eats and the way that climate is, you know, agricultural production is a primary contributor to climate problems. Soil degradation, the, you know, the, use, the using up of fresh water for irrigating all these crops, 
all these things are connected to the way we're eating, and uh, that's why the GMO thing is such an interesting part of all this. In your investigation of how GMOs are affecting different communities, it took you to Hawaii, and uh, there you saw kind of three different types of stories. Yeah, Hawaii, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. So there, uh, Hawaii has an amazing climate to, to grow food. They have such a warm climate, such great soil, that they can grow crops three full cycles a year instead of just one, the way it would be in more temperate climates. So uh, some of these big chemical agricultural companies decided that they would go to Hawaii and uh, create what are called experimental farm plots. So that they will take a they will take a, a field and they will plant it with a certain grain and then they will spray it and spray it and spray it and see what survives. And if a bean is able to survive or a corn plant is able to survive this chemical onslaught that kills everything else, they will they will you know gradually weed out the strongest seeds that that survive this chemical application because, of course, when they are scaled up and sold to a farmer in Nebraska, the farmer is going to be spraying his fields with the same chemical. So what the experimentation on all this stuff is happening in Hawaii, and that's kind of where the, the birth of all this uh, GMO stuff happens, is on the island of Kauai, the island of Maui particularly. Um, and what's happened, of course, is that local people on those islands uh, know or suspect or have heard rumors about all this, but they want to know more information about it. Where, where are all these chemicals being sprayed? What happens when all this stuff blows up into the trade winds and blows into our schools or into our, our communities? And they are trying to get more information out of these companies, and the companies are refusing to give it to them. So then these, these people, these local people, have started these voter referendums to try to force these companies to give up information, uh, and the companies fight them and fight them and fight them. And finally, and at least in the case in Kauai, uh, the people won. They got, they got a law passed that was going to force these companies to reveal what and when they spray. The companies turned right around and sued in, in uh, federal court and said that local people don't have jurisdiction over their own land. This is a federal issue, and the federal agencies will decide what is right. Now, we know, especially given recent political uh, evolution, that uh, companies benefit from having all control in Washington because companies have a great deal of influence over Washington. They have much less influence over local people. So this becomes a real interesting question of democracy, like who gets to control landscape? Is it local people controlling their own land, or is this a distant bureaucracy in Washington? Think about it. A bureaucracy in Washington uh, allowing a company based in St. Louis or based in Delaware to continue to do things in Hawaii, and the local Hawaiian people don't even get a say over what happens on their land. This, you can see how this could become a real issue about who has power, who has political power, and that, that's what you see going on in Hawaii. So what's the alternative then? Uh, I mean, you talk about several, and what possible uses for GM crops that, again, can be beneficial, and how is it really that it can be used in a way besides this industrial farming that's kind of built up around massive use of a meager benefits? Yeah, GM technology is a fairly benign thing. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of agnostic on the technology itself. So, you know, there are, there are nonprofit university researchers that are doing work on genetically altered crops that could be used, for example, to create drought-resistant uh, uh, crops in Africa, where, you know, if you have climate change that is dramatically changing the climate, you can create a cassava plant, for example, that might stand up better in drier conditions. Or they can create a, a rice grain that has beta carotene in it so people in, say, for example, the Philippines, if they're vitamin A deficient and their kids are blind when they're 
because they're vitamin A deficient, now that they eat this rice, they might have uh, more beta carotene in their system, more vitamin A. That that is, you know, in the in the interest of public health. The big companies are not involved in that because there's not enough money in it. So GMO technology can be used for lots of beneficial things. It's just that it's in this country, it's not. In this country, the GMOs are being used to scale up industrial food. So that's one thing, is that the technology can be used in, in better ways in different parts of the world. The solution term in, for American consumers of food, in my opinion, is to do uh, what you probably instinctively know anyway, which is to eat more produce, you know, in other words, don't eat so much processed, fast, junk food, but eat fresh produce, because fresh produce, by the way, is never GMO, but of course, that's where the nutritional density is, is in fruits and vegetables. What you get with the, with the GMO foods is very high calorie, but low nutritional benefit. So what you want to do is eat as much fresh produce as you can. And then on as a corollary, you want to eat as much local food as you can because local food is also generally not GMO because you're buying it from small-scale farming. Uh, and that corollary there is that you want your money to go to small farmers because small farmers have a vested interest in preserving their soil, preserving their water. You know, they, they tend to operate in a much more sustainable way than any of these gigantic industrial farms. So the nice thing about the GMO thing is if you don't want to eat GMOs, all you got to do is eat better. And eating better will give you a natural way to sidestep uh, a lot of these products that you really don't want to be a part of. So you present this issue to your students and uh, have them uh, give it a shot. And what do you think the next generation feels about? So I take, I, I write a little chapter, as you mentioned, in the end of the book where I take not ag students, but like English majors and history majors and anthropology majors, and I take them out and, and we work on a farm. Now, my goal there is not to turn them into farmers, although, to be honest, a whole bunch of them do become farmers because farming in a very diverse, local, organic way actually is very challenging and interesting to college students, as it used to be to lots of people. They don't want to go work on an industrial farm. They want to work on a small-scale farm. So that's a, that's a weird side benefit, but that happens to be true. But really the main impulse here is to get people simply to get their hands in the dirt. You know, it's amazing how many of us can go through our lives eating food with no concept of how it's grown. And to me, what you want is a, is a culture that is a little more intimate with food and food production. And if, if you do that, at least in my experience, instantly students become much more respectful of farmers. They become much more aware of how difficult the work is. And, you know, in theory, what you would like is to have farmers become a much more central, honored, and, by the way, you know, enriched part of your culture. You would want your farmers to be wealthy instead of poor and respected instead of neglected because, after all, they're the ones who are feeding us. So my idea here is that you want to, you want to raise a generation of kids that are suddenly more intimate with food production so that they end up asking better questions and making better choices when they get to go to the supermarket. Well, certainly a challenge uh, for the future here. I'm, I'm curious just to close. Do you have any final words people want to add or more? Uh, well, I mean, given what I just said, I would say that in the current political climate, when you see a lot of this instinct towards deregulating everything, what that deregulation essentially is going to lead to is a lot more of what we've already seen, which is giving very large companies free reign to, to do much more of what they're already doing, which, in my opinion, is not necessarily beneficial. It might be beneficial to the companies, but it's not necessarily beneficial to our public health, to the way we eat, to the way our food is, is grown or nutritious. 
uh, or to the landscape, which we didn't really get to talk about much, but there are environmental consequences of this kind of farming, too, uh, not least of which is we have, I think, 170 million acres of GMOs as it is, uh, all of which are sprayed with these herbicides, which, you know, for example, kill all the milkweed in the country, which is the only food source for monarch butterflies. And now you see the population of monarch butterflies is at like 4% of their historical level. So that's, is that a GMO problem? Well, not directly because they're not being killed by GMOs, but they're being killed by the herbicides sprayed on GMOs. So weirdly, like if you eat, you know, chicken nuggets that are fed GMO soybeans and the GMO soybeans are sprayed with these weed killers and then the weed killers kill the monarch butterflies, you know, it's all connected. And the, the more you can think about the connections of things, uh, I think the wiser you'll be. That, that, that seems to be the thing that I discovered with all this. Indeed. Uh, certainly hope you will take a further look. Uh, we were just talking with Professor McKay Jenkins. He's the author of the new book, Food Fight, GMOs, and the Future of the American Diet. And uh, Professor Jenkins, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks for the invitation. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on rocking.